the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Air Vice Marshal Giovanni Avasi, AMCSC, Air Commander Australia. This role is responsible for all Operation Air Force tasks and reports to the Chief of Air Force. Air Vice Marshal Joe Avasi completed flying training in 1989 and converted onto the FA-18 Hornet in 1991. He then, during his Air Force career as a fighter pilot, served in junior pilot roles through to flight commander appointments and then commanding officer of 3 Squadron. A notable posting was on exchange to 5 Squadron RAF, flying the Tornado F-3. He deployed on Operation Deny Flight, enforcing the no-fly zone over Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1995. In staff and command appointments, Air Vice Marshal Avasi served with Capability Systems, 81 Wing as Senior Operations Officer and Officer Commanding, and Chiefs of Staff positions to Air Combat Group and to the Vice Chief of the Defence Force. Air Vice Marshal Lavasi was promoted to Air Commodore and deployed to the Middle East as the Director, U.S. Central Command, 609th Combined Air Operations Centre at Al-Udid Air Base in Qatar. He returned to Australia in July 2014 and was appointed to the position of Director General Air Command Operations and Director General Air, where he commanded global air operations, including Operation Okra. This posting was followed in December 2016 with a two-year appointment as Commander Air Warfare Centre. In December 2018, on promotion to Air Vice Marshal, he was appointed Commander Joint Task Force 633 and deployed again to the Middle East, this time stationed in Al-Minhad Air Base in Dubai. Air Vice Marshal Ivasi took up his current role as Air Commander Australia in July 2019. Air Vice Marshal Ivasi has over 3,000 hours flying fast jets. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree, a Master's of Management in Defence Studies and a Graduate Diploma in Strategic Studies. He's been awarded the Medal in the Order of Australia 2009, Australian Active Service Medal, Afghanistan Medal, Defence Long Service Medal with Third Class and the Australian Defence Medal. He was appointed as a member in the Order of Australia in 2016 and in June 2020 he was awarded a Conspicuous Service Cross for Outstanding Achievement as the Commander, Joint Task Force 633. Well, look, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be part of these podcasts. I mean, for me, it's a very important role for the Royal Australian Air Force, the wider community of Australia, to know exactly past and present personnel, what they do, why they do it, and why it is such an important organisation. So could I start by saying thank you, even though we haven't started? Well, uh, it's probably a little bit premature there, Gareth, and uh, I guess my answers will, uh, you can thank me later, but no, <laughs> okay. it's, a, it's a real privilege to uh, to be part of this podcast. Look, I, I start pretty much the same way with everyone I've spoken to. Why did you join the Air Force? 
Yeah, it's um, a question I often ask those that I meet within Air Force as well, because I'm always interested uh, about the motivations of individuals. And uh, for me personally, I was one of those kids, you know, as a teenager that had the Airfix models hanging up in the ceiling of my bedroom with a mock Battle of Britain going on there. Uh, I could only afford certain scale models and they weren't all the same scale. So I had to change the perspective of where they were so the aircraft looked the same the same height in battle. Uh, and so I've always uh, been drawn to aviation and certainly military aviation as well. Um, as, a, as a kid, um, I joined up with the Australian Air League uh, down in New South Wales and I really enjoyed my time there. It was kind of like a Boy Scouts version yeah. Uh, of uh, entry into aviation and, and I really uh, resonated with me. Uh, I moved as a, as a child uh, up to, from Sydney up to Brisbane and completed my high school there. Uh, I had a look at the Air Force cadets. Um, they didn't have an air league in Brisbane at that time. Um, interestingly, the Air Force cadets didn't really resonate with me <laughs> at that point. So um, I, I thought it was less about marching and more about you know getting into aviation. But when I was in high school, um, I didn't think that I was the type of person that was actual the material to be joining up for Air Force uh, and or becoming a pilot. So I'd been aiming myself at uh, after school, going to university, getting a degree, but earning some money so I could pay for flying lessons so that I could actually learn how to fly. That was where my mind was at. Uh, it was only by pure coincidence, uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, same year at school in Brisbane, his brother was actually an Air Force pilot at, at that time, flying uh, C-130Es uh, at that point. And he said to me, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of going to recruiting. Do you want to come along? I go, sure, I'll come along with you. Uh, and by uh, due circumstance, that's how I bumbled into Air Force. Oh, I didn't actually... I didn't actually intend to go to uh, recruiting, but I went there because I went along to support a mate. Um, I Unfortunately, I was the one who got in and my mate did not. Uh, ouch, so, ouch. Yeah, so, but, but that's how I entered into Air Force. Um, it wasn't by design, uh, but it was an opportunity to present itself. I, I'm interested. You said um, you didn't think you were the material right for the Air Force, and yet you got in. What did you think you didn't have that would have negated you getting in? Well, Gareth, I think it's it's probably everything in life is about having uh, confidence and having someone uh, who can just actually encourage you along that path to say, no, I actually think you're capable of doing these things. And that, to me, has been an important aspect of my entire career as well and, and through into the role that I do now as the Air Commander is from time to time people actually don't know what they're capable of and they need a bit of an encouragement mm. to steer them through. So for me, um, coming from uh, my Italian heritage background, um, I had a view of what the Air Force was and, and I, I guess I never saw myself as fitting a particular mould. Uh, but I couldn't have been further from the truth once I, I joined up. Maybe, maybe some strange way, Joe, that, that is a, a plus that you didn't think and therefore you didn't realise what you had because you would not have become Air Vice Marshal, Air Commander Australia if you didn't have all of the ingredients. And, and on that title, on that very title, I've got to ask 
because I'm not in the Air Force, and someone listening to you right now may be considering the Air Force and doesn't know what that is. What does an Air Commander Australia, what is your role? What do you do? Yeah, thanks, Gareth. Well, if, if I was to uh, compare it to a, a business or an organisation, the Air Commander is the Chief Operating Officer. So within Air Force, there are approximately 15,000 uh, personnel, aviators. Around about 12,000 of those are within Air Command. Everything that operates, every aircraft, every air base, and all the training is all within Air Command. So the machinery of what we call the force in being, that is what we fight with, is within Air Command. To what extent would that responsibility, and that sounds like an awesome responsibility, how, how heavily does that weigh upon your shoulders each day you get up and put on that uniform? Oh, remain focused on uh, what our primary task is. And at the end of the day, the primary role for Air Command, and it's the Air Command motto, is to be alert and ready. And that readiness aspect is about being prepared for whatever uh, tasks and roles and missions that the government requires us to do. So our primary focus within Air Command is to have a force that's capable of meeting any contingency uh, that uh, might be assigned to us. Yeah, and in th- those kinds of eventualities and in your role, to what extent is the importance of a relationship with Army and Navy within the Australian defence system? Yeah, that's your spot on the mark there, Gareth, and that's the key point. So the way we conduct operations uh, within the Australian Defence Force is as a joint operation. Uh We changed our framework for command and control for operations in the mid-2000s, around about 2006, when I think we first created Headquarters Australian Theatre, which was actually based in Sydney. In 2009, when Headquarters Joint Operations Command was established out of Bungendore, uh, just outside of the ACT, um, we changed our command and control such that every operation that an Australian Defence Force was assigned would come under a single chain of command, and that was the Chief of Joint Operations. In order to be prepared as a Defence Force, therefore, there's no one single service uh, assigned a single responsibility. The whole Joint Force needs to come together. And so together with uh, the Fleet Commander, the Forces Commander, the Special Operations Commander, uh, the four of us uh, work collaboratively and collegiately together to ensure that we are providing forces that are fit for purpose as a joint force to the Chief of Joint Operations for operational tasking. And and how does the command structure in, in that kind of situation work? There, there must be someone still sitting at the top of the tree, surely. And if, if, if so, who might that be? Not naming a person, but which force might have that role? Um, are you talking about for the conduct of joint operations? Yes, yes. Uh, there must be a commander. Yeah, well, that is, well, the theatre commander and the overall global commander is the uh, is the uh, commander of joint operations. Okay, okay. Uh, so that's the single entity. However, if we're going into an operational theatre, there may be a joint task force uh, created, uh, and if that is the case, uh, a commander of the joint task force could be assigned. Uh, as an example, most recently, before I took over the role as the air commander, uh, I was the 
Joint Task Force Commander uh, within the Middle East region uh, for six months. And so I was uh, assigned as the principal officer responsible for all ADF forces within the Middle East region, but I responded and reported directly to the Chief of Joint Operations. Okay, that, make, <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. Let, let's talk a little bit more about you and, you and your development throughout the Air Force rather than put all the weight of the, your job currently on your shoulders immediately. Uh, 1989, 1991, you, you, you're starting to fly, and I think it was 1991, you got into the FA-18 Hornets. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, that's right, uh, Gareth. So joined in 85 through what was the RAF Academy down at Point Cook. Um, in 1986, the Australian Defence Force Academy was established in Canberra. And so the three single service colleges all moved to Canberra at that particular point. And so I completed my uh, degree, uh, military degree in 1987. Uh, but that was the start of what was a social experiment yeah. <laughs> in terms of uh, joint military education and training. Uh, but importantly, so creating that joint institution has changed fundamentally uh, the culture across the Australian Defence Force. You know, if I look across the top of the Defence Force today in its leadership, uh, there's a high percentage of the leadership uh, who are byproducts of those early stages through the Defence Force Academy. So it's no coincidence that the reason why we are such a joined up and tight joint force is a byproduct of the institutional change that was taken uh, 35 years ago to create uh, the Defence Force Academy. So actually by design, um, and a generation has passed, you can now probably get a true measure of the merits of that institution. Okay. I, I, I You're... Pilot by by birth, surely you, you like planes. You like sitting behind a a joystick or, or or a wheel and and flying the thing yourself. What have you had the most joy in flying, and what have been the most difficult planes for you to fly and to to accomplish success with? Yeah, thanks, Gareth. Well, um, I'm not a natural pilot, and I've found every aircraft I've jumped into difficult to fly uh, to start with. Uh, so I'm kind of one of those uh, slow learners, I guess, is the bottom line. I remember starting my pilot training on the CT4, our basic uh, trainer down at Point Cook, now at, at what was 1FTS back in the day, uh, which basically a, a side-by-side, kind of like a, a Cessna 152 aircraft. I remember my first few flights in there because the engine is droning, the <laughs> cockpit is vibrating, you're getting the fumes coming through there. And my first few flights is like, oh, this is really uncomfortable. I'm feeling sick. <laughs> I'm really not quite sure if I'm cut out for this. Um, but I kind of endured uh, with that. I had some really good instructors that uh, encouraged me along the way. And, and I guess I bumbled my way through uh, uh, elementary flying training. Then when I transitioned onto the Mackie uh, jet trainer over in Pierce, that was a whole different kettle of fish and really enjoyable. Firstly, it didn't vibrate like the people. <laughs> the second part is the cockpit environment was tight and small. And because there's no propeller in front of you, you feel like you're sitting right at the front of the aircraft. I remember strapping for the first time and looking out and go, I have this unimpeded view in front of me. It's like, wow, this is awesome. Um, and I really enjoyed my time uh, on the Mackie, and it was really during that process of uh, at number two FTS 
uh, I really came to honestly enjoy the flying aspects of it. It became less of a chore and more of an enjoyment. And, and because I was enjoying it and I had once again great instructors guiding yeah. me there, yeah. uh, I, I performed pretty well at the end of it and was subsequently selected for uh, fast jet candidacy. The, you keep on talking about the trainer. You had good trainers. Um, that must be one of the very important roles within the Air Force for a, for training a pilot, be it a transport pilot or a fighter pilot or a, or a helicopter or whatever. How important is the trainer's role, with, do you see it, within the RAAF? Uh, it's absolutely crucial, and it's not just for pilot training. It's a training of any type. So instruction and training and the quality of the instructor, because an instructor is a, is a teacher, they're a, a mentor, they're a coach. And so all those aspects, particularly when you have, as I was, you know, kids who'd left straight out of high school and entered into service. You know, I was still growing up. I was still maturing uh, as a young adult as well. And from time to time, you need, um, you know, a big brother or a, you know, a parent-like figure as well to also guide you through uh, what is challenging times. Um, I'd always been... Um, a fan of team sports so played a lot of soccer and cricket and I'm still a a passionate cricket supporter (laughs) these days but the notion of team sports for me has followed also through to my career and and being in an organization institution such as the Air Force is like a big team sport as well and so I draw strength out of the team coming together and I never saw myself as an individual and when I find myself in a an environment where the team is really promoted, sustained and supported, I find I can be my best within that environment as well, as opposed to um, there might be the notion of a fighter pilot as the the lone wolf who's out there um, alone and unafraid, um, as you read through the Knights of the Air and the First World War, uh, etc. They're all valuable attributes and there, there is an element of individualism and idiosyncrasy that I think comes with it. Uh, But for me personally, it's more about the team uh, and that's where I've found my strengths. Well, even that individual fighter pilot is still part of and relies heavily on a team. When that jet lands, it is the team that prepares that jet. It is not just the pilot. He flies it or she flies it, but it is a whole team thing. There's no, I said to someone recently, in that word team, there's no I. There's no I, the letter I in the word team. No, that's right. But um, there is a me in team. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you spell it backwards, all right, point taken. Look, uh, in your role, um, how important is it that everyone, and I use this word carefully, everyone below you, every other rank below you, feels a sense of connection to the person above them in rank so that, there is an esprit de corps right across the whole rank from one right down to 1,700. So I think the connection is not so much necessarily a connection to a chain of command. It's a connection to a purpose. And so by defining a purpose and a unifying theme that everyone can rally around, the organisational structure we have is just how we command and control and organise and employ But uh, as you find, certainly within Air Force and Air Forces writ large, we have from time to time, and particularly on a flying unit, it's a more informal structure with the chain of command. 
it works well on the ground uh, for administration, but when you are in the air, um, your competency is based upon your experience in that particular role. And that is resident in all uh, aviation, even through to today. And so nothing warms the cockles of my heart than when I jump onto a C-17 today and there are two flying officers uh, in charge of that aircraft and the entire crew behind them. But that flying officer is the aircraft captain and I'll take whatever orders and instructions that aircraft captain requires for the safe and effective execution of that mission. So the chain of command works in terms of order, uh, discipline uh, and organisation. In terms of execution from a, a military execution perspective, the way that air forces fight, um, particularly for flying elements, it comes down to your role, your competency uh, and those leaders will uh, be evident through that uh, process. Mm. Something that I'm sure you've thought about yourself, but in your position as Air Commander Australia, what would you say were the important ingredients for a commander or leader to possess? Um, humility, uh, respect, um, a sense of being part of a team, not above the team, but also recognising that at the end of the day, the commander is the decision maker as well. And so you do need to preserve uh, the integrity of the space to make those decisions. Yeah. Being very much part of a team, but actually sufficiently segregated from it, that the integrity of military command and control can be retained. But that is built also through uh, empowering those that work with you mm. Uh, to actually explore the boundaries about what it takes for them to uh, be comfortable as well. Uh, there is, as I say to all commanders uh, in Air Command right now, as they're about to enter into their respective command position, whether that's at a unit command or a wing command or at a, or a group level command, I say, look, there, there are two gifts I'm going to give to you in your execution of command. The first gift is that I'm not expecting that every decision you're going to make is going to be the right decision, but that's okay. Even if I know you're going to make a wrong decision, but I'm aware that the decision is recoverable, I'm still going to let you make that wrong decision because part of your process of learning about being a commander is actually recovering from your own decision-making as well. Yep. I've never found anything more empowering as a commander and a leader that uh, the commander can stand up in front of the unit and say, you know, that was an error, uh, that was a decision that um, that I took that was not right. Uh, I recognise that. Thank you for those that advised me. We're now changing that decision. So having that accountability as well is a really powerful thing as a commander and leader to have, but also the humility to understand that you're not going to get it all right. Yeah. So the first gift I say is to provide them with a psychologically safe environment where they can make those decisions. Yeah. The second gift I give them is, as well, is that I can uh, put a problem set on a table uh, amongst five different commanders and you're all going to come up with a different answer. I'm also okay with that as well because I'm not expecting an homogeneity of decision-making because you need to make a decision in the context of your unit and what's important and how you've shaped that around. 
So that's okay as well. I'm not expecting everyone to come up with the same answer. Oh, and by the way, if it's not right, refer to point one. If it's not right, fix it up. <laughs> so um, being, being, being a commander is actually about having the courage of your convictions, following through and making decisions. And really in the military, we drive uh, on decision-making and implementation, but also checks and balances as well. And so I need to be able to back them up and give them the support to grow and develop over time. Because I can still tell you, even as of today, every decision I make uh, isn't right. I like to think I'm working a pretty high probability of success for most of my decisions. But from time to time, uh, they could be better. Yeah. I, I would advise you to perhaps write a paper and, and issue the, what you just said now makes perfect sense to me as to what are the ingredients for a successful commander and then publish that paper because it's pretty good. And could I share with you that another great commander on D-Day, General Eisenhower, in charge of everything, wrote two papers. He wrote one to encourage all of those people that were about to face Nazi Germany, and he wrote a second one, in case I fail, this is my apology. So he, he covered all bases, but be that as it may. Look, the Australian Air Force, notwithstanding Navy and, and, and Army, has been involved in Operation Accordion, Operation High Road, Operation Okra, Operation Gateway, Operation Aslan, Operation Resolute, etc., etc. I want to talk about some of the ones that you've been involved in, and you can just reflect on what you're allowed to reflect on. For example, Operation Deny Flight with NATO. What was that and how did you get involved in that? So Operation Deny Flight, um, I was uh, posted on an exchange tour with the Royal Air Force over the period 1993 through to 1996. Um, and that was an exchange tour flying the Tornado F3 air defence variant uh, based out of RAF Base Coningsby uh, in Lincolnshire on uh, Number 5 Squadron. In 1995, uh, Operation, or well, the, the conflict in Bosnia-Herzegovina had been ongoing over consecutive uh, years. There was the enforcement of a no-fly zone. Operation Deny Flight was that in the, a NATO mission to enforce, uh, sorry, a UN mission to enforce the no-fly zone over Bosnia. And so during my time on exchange, um, I was involved in Operation Deny Flight. We were based out of southern Italy uh, at a, a little village called Gioia de Col, uh, and we were flying missions across uh, the Adriatic uh, into uh, an overhead uh, Bosnia enforcing the no-fly zone. Yeah, and uh, th- did that involve you flying as well or were you in charge of what, what was your role in, in that particular operation? Yeah, so back in the day I was, I was a line driver. So I was uh, Flight Lieutenant Yavasi, uh, as I like to call myself. I was the senior Australian officer in the unit because uh, <laughs> I was the only Australian officer. Uh, on <laughs> that the makes unit. you the senior one. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, uh, so I was I was part of the the line drivers, uh, part of the crew, uh, flying uh, over Bosnia. Uh, during that time, it was the summer of 1995, uh, and it was kind of a very torrid time on the ground in Sarajevo. There was a big big push uh, from the Serbian forces at that point, and and the situation on the ground got uh, pretty dire there mm. uh, for a period of time uh, as well. It was also during uh, that period. Uh, there was uh, United States Air Force F-16 uh, piloted by uh, a guy called Scott O'Grady, who was actually shot down by a surface-to-air missile mm. uh, up in the northwest corner of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina 
that very afternoon. I'd been on that mission that morning and had flown over that uh, very spot uh, that afternoon. Uh, Scott O'Grady was shot down. Ouch. Yes, um, the uniform you're wearing or were wearing then was an Australian uniform. Uh, how receptive were all of the other people you're involved in to the actual Australian presence there? Well, um, I don't think particularly aware of it. And as an exchange officer, I'm essentially, I am an Australian, but in an embedded position in a Royal Air Force unit. For all intents and purposes, I was a Royal Air Force uh. pilot. Right, but I spoke, but I spoke a funny accent. I guess is the, uh, <laughs> the yeah, and yeah. Uh, and, I, and I was probably more articulate and sharper at sport than uh, most of the, my compatriots on the squadron. Was that soccer then? <laughs> uh, no, more cricket. Uh, in fact, one of the great joys was uh, in the local village where uh, my wife and I uh, found a house, a village called Woodall Spa. And now Woodall Spa, there's a bit of history behind that as well. During the Second World War the thousand bomber raids etc lincolnshire was the heart of bomber command and the and uh, in woodall spa there was a hotel called the petwood hotel the petwood hotel became the de facto officers mess for 617 squadron the dam busters so guy gibson and the squadron were based out of the wow. petwood hotel and so there was a rich history in that village um uh extending back to Ballabrit and Bomber Command, and, and we were part of that, and it was absolutely uh, wonderful as well. Wow, wow. So did you move from uh, Operation Denied Flight to 5 Squadron RAF and then on the Tornado F3s? Yeah, so the way it works is I went across uh, on exchange in 1993. I did a conversion onto the Tornado. Then once I completed my Tornado conversion, I was assigned to Number 5 Squadron. And so for the remaining two and a half years on exchange, I was with 5 Squadron, and therefore I deployed on Operation Deny Flight with Number 5 Squadron. Okay. And when you think back and compare training in Australia and working with the RAF, are there any differences or is it so similar it's almost like being at home? Really, it was chalk and cheese, to tell you the truth. Um, The RAF and the Tornado, as, as wonderful a platform as it was, wasn't particularly a great aircraft to fly. It was very mandrolic. Um, And the RAF, uh, and I don't think they would uh, deny me my comments now, is they didn't have a lot of really great equipment that they were operating. But the thing about the RAF, and I think it was more of a British attitude as well, they would squeeze every last inch out of every capability they have and they would maximise their performance. And what I really enjoyed working as part of a, an RAF squadron was just their attitude about, no, nah, we've just got to make this work. Let's figure our way out. Equally so, uh, having spent most of my career flying in Australia or Southeast Asia, and as I look out here at, at Glenbrook today with some beautiful blue sky, most of my time flying was in, you know, really excellent weather conditions. I get to the UK and the weather is crap. <laughs> and it's crap at the time. I remember, I remember one particular week, um, it, it was foggy for an entire week. The fog would start at about 50 feet. By around about 3 o'clock in the, mor- uh, in the afternoon, it had raised to about 150 feet at maximum warning, and then it started to sink again. And so that was it. But we still went flying. Uh, we went flying in fog because it's a case of, well, we still need to operate in all weather conditions. Sure. And what I also got to appreciate with the REF is actually um, true all-weather uh, operations as well. Yeah. 
Would it be right in saying that the RAAF is the child of the RAF? The RAAF has its lineage uh, with the RAF without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, I'm a bit cautious of using parent and child as an analogy there <laughs> yeah, right, because okay. the reality is we have we have a common lineage but uh, and a common philosophical background, uh, but the ethos of both is such that I don't think there is a superior subordinate relationship at all. Certainly, we dip our lid to the RAF as the oldest air force in the world, uh, with the RAAF being the second oldest. Uh, but it's certainly not a parent-child relationship. Oh, okay, fair enough. M- maybe, maybe a husband-wife. Then we'll, we'll put them on the same par. But we won't, we won't dwell on that. Uh, you become, I believe, director U.S. Central Command of the 609th in Al Udid Air Base. Is that correct? And if so, what was what was your job there? Yeah, thanks, Gareth. So back in uh, January 2014, uh, I was deployed uh, once again as another exchange position as the uh, director of all all air operations within the central command area of operations. So pretty much the central command area of operations extends from most countries that end in STAN uh, all the way through to um, uh, Jordan and Syria uh, in the west and and most places in between, uh, encompassing uh, the Gulf, Uh, and clearly Afghanistan and Iraq as well. Uh, At that time, so my position as the CAOC Director, Combined Air and Space Operations Director, was responsible for the uh, current operations of all uh, military aviation under the command of the, the Combined Force Air Component Commander, who was a US Air Force three-star general, Mm. uh, all coalition operations across that theatre. And in July, I think, July uh, 2014, you end up in uh, with Operation Okra, what is Director, DG of Air Command Operations, Global Air Ops, is that right? Yeah, so um, my my position as the CAOC Director as an exchange position uh, concluded in July, but the last four weeks I was in the seat there was when, uh, in the US parlance, Operation Inherent Resolve uh, initiated. And that was uh, the first push of ISIS into Iraq. So I was actually the CAOC director when that operation started. uh, And it was frenetic in terms of the first uh, 96 hours of establishing that operation, because we'd spent a bulk of our time in Afghanistan uh, where, and in Afghanistan, we had plenty of that air assets, plenty of intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance drones providing full coverage over every movement yep, yep. Uh, on the ground. Then when it started to cook off in Iraq, we had nothing there. And we didn't have any overhead intelligence, surveillance or reconnaissance available. Uh, and things got pretty dire at the start of that operation in July where there was the concerns of Baghdad actually being overrun. So we uh, established um, the air part of the coalition and combined operation that became Operation Inherent Resolve. My time as the chaos director subsequently ended um, in mid-July. I came back home, had a bit of leave, and then I took up the role uh, with the RAAF as Director General Air Operations. Um, 
And then in September of that year is when the Australian government made the decision that we were going to support uh, operations in Iraq. And therefore, I subsequently became the Air Operations Commander for Operation Okra. So for me, it was kind of seamless because I'd been central to the establishment of air operations under Operation Inherent Resolve. And then coming back as DGR, it couldn't have been more seamless because I still knew everyone in the CAOC because uh, they were working with me uh, previously. And that enabled us to seamlessly embed in that operation in a very short period of time. Yeah. When you take Operation Deny Flight and Operation Okra, uh, two entirely different geographies, uh, how, how do you compare, how do you frame your decision-making to fit the geography in the area in which you're working? Yeah, that's a really good question. So part of it is actually it's all context. So it's context about the geography. It's context about the mission set. It's context about the threat. It's also context about the forces you're working for and with. Um, and geography, as with most things in life, plays a pretty uh, determining part about how you conduct an operation. Operation Deny Flight, based out of southern Italy, it was a permissive air environment, so there was no air threat uh, per se uh, in there. And we were, it was an airborne policing operation. And, and so there wasn't a lot of action per se. Most of it was happening on the ground, understanding yeah. uh, that there was a, a surface-to-air threat uh, there. So flip that across to uh, Op Inherent Resolve and the Australian version of that Operation Okra. Likewise, it was a permissive air environment. There was no air threat per se. All the action was happening on the ground and it had more to do with how we coordinating with forces on the ground to assist them uh, in actually holding ground and recapturing ground uh, there as well. So a lot of those early days is coming up with a plan of coordinating with the ground scheme and manoeuvre uh, but also developing uh, an independent air operation. And this is where Central Command comes into sure. it, an independent air operation that uh, gets at the heart of uh, denying uh, ISIS uh, or Daesh uh, their freedom of manoeuvre. And so an air interdiction campaign was developed uh, sometime into uh, Operation Okra. Uh, we started to target, you know, the lines of support for uh, Daesh, and that started to really... Uh, make a, a determined impact uh, upon them. Yep. Um, both of those operations, or just about all the operations that the Air Force is involved in overseas, are, is operating with international RAA, uh, international Air Forces. Uh, what makes the Australian training so good that we seem to be able to fit in, adapt and almost lead a lot of these operations. What is it about our training that gives us that skill, gives us that presence internationally? Yeah, that's a really uh, really good and insightful question there, Gareth. At the end of the day, the size of the Australian Defence Force is, is small, and equally so, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force as a subset of the Joint Force is equally small. As a small force, we don't have any redundancy in mass so we are critically dependent upon the individual and collective qualities of our systems and our workforce to actually deliver the greatest bang for buck. So for our Air Force, in fact, right across the Joint Force, uh, but in our Air Force in particular, uh, and a lot of my career has been in the air combat uh, portion of our Air Force as well, 
it's a high focus on quality uh, and training, realistic training to the highest levels of complexity, uh, which enables us to continually critique um, how we would uh, go in the most complex environments. Mm. So developing the cognitive skill sets of everyone involved to the highest level possible. And because when you uh, are able to get a workforce at working at high cognitive skill levels, they are more able to quickly adapt to a new situation because they've got that inherent experience and skill to do so. So at the end of the day, when you're designing a small force, you need to have your primary design criterias, I need a force of quality and I need a depth of experience and quality to drive that. After I've got that really rich experience of depth of quality, then it's the breadth of experience that becomes the more dominant factor. How do I now apply that deep experiential skill across a joint force? Mm. So that's been part of really Air Force's DNA for a long time. And it really is the modus operandi of our, of our most significant uh, course that we conduct within uh, Air Force. And that's the Air Warfare Instructors course. Yep. The Air Warfare Instructors course is to take uh, what are already highly proficient and expert individuals in their own systems, whether that's to be airborne command and control through a wedge tail or uh, a PA Poseidon uh, crew or an intelligence officer, but actually raise them to a level of how do they become uh, experts at instruction at that complex war fighting mm. level and how do they become experts at integrating all those complex systems together to create a joint force but that's st still founded upon the fundamental principle of quality and that's why we're able to leave australia within seven days notice in september 2014 start flying within seven days further in operation okra and seven days after that we dropped our first weapon so 21 days after um, leaving Australia, we employed our first weapon on Operation Okra when our extant readiness notice was that technically we should have had 35 days notice before we even left Australia. So, but we were operating, you know, at the 21-day point, which is extraordinary. You certainly prove the point that Australia has and always will seem to punch way above its weight in terms of what it's capable of doing. And I would assume from all of the people that I've spoken to in these podcasts who have worked with the United States Air Force, they always tell me how appreciative the American air person is about the Australian. They, they become like brothers immediately because of the training, because of the, the relationship and the depth of training that has occurred back at home with the RAAF. Yeah, and I think that's probably a fair characterisation there, Gareth, because what we have, uh, not just the RAAF, but across the joint force, because we hold a, a high-quality standard for training, you know, for want of a better term, the quality bar that we have across our force is comparatively higher than I think with most other forces. And secondly, the, the deviation from that quality is kind of tight as well. Yeah. So you know what you're going to get with an Aussie uh, when they turn up on operations and you know they're going to have the right skill set and experience, but, but more importantly, attitude to just muck in and, and, and get it done as well. Yeah. And yeah. that is really uh, 
the essence of what Australia brings to the fight. Mm. I just want to ask you a couple of questions, if I may, about equipment. Uh, and I know it's not a decision that an army, an air force or a navy make completely by themselves. A lot of it is to do with bureaucrats and experts outside of the defence forces. But we are in Australia and we have purchased uh, tanks. I'm not asking you to comment on this. I'm just making a comment myself. We've purchased tanks which would then have to be in some way, shape or form transported to somewhere else in the world if they're going to be operational. We've also purchased the F-35A, which is a fantastic fighter, wonderful fighter, but it has a distance of, of a certain distance, 2,000 kilometres. Any potential enemy is far more than 2,000 kilometres away. How does someone in your position then take the equipment like an F-35A or whatever it happens to be and decide how to implement that piece of equipment in any conflict that may occur way away from Australia? Well, that's the uh, the $64,000 question (laughs) there, uh, Gareth, and that's the key part, is that that's our job to figure that out. So the the Australian government in the middle of 2020 released uh, some pretty foundational and fundamental uh, documents, the first one being the Defence Strategic Update. Mm -hmm which defined the environment within which we find ourselves, but set uh, the Australian Defence Force three strategic defence objectives. That is to shape, deter and respond. Now, in my career, that's the most assertive language I've heard of an Australian government um, make associated with what the Australian Defence Force is to do. The notion of shaping and deterrence and even response is based upon the ability to project force. The last time I looked at Australia, we're still surrounded by water. Australia inherently is a maritime nation. Mm. That doesn't mean it's all about the Navy, but rather uh, we need a maritime strategy in order to have our defence and our ability to force, generate, project and sustain has to be done within a maritime approach. With that in mind, we're always challenged by um, how do we both um, deliver a message, which might be a a punch in the nose to someone, but equally so, how do we defend based upon the scale of the country, the size of our force and what we have. And that's that's what we deal with every single day. Uh, We train with the force we have, not the force that we think we have or the force that we want to have. And the reality is that um, despite all new initiatives that are coming on board, at the end of the day, uh, we remain prepared with what we have practically mm. today. <clears throat> so great initiatives coming forward, uh, bring them uh, into service, uh, but at the heart of that, all that equipment is still operated, maintained uh, and fought with by humans. Yeah. And yeah. so it still comes down to the individual qualities uh, irrespective to think our way through what from time to time are ambiguous, complex and uncertain circumstances. Yeah, and they certainly are that at the moment, I can, I can assure you. Geoffrey Blaney, Australia's historian, once said when talking about Australia, we face the tyranny of distance, which if that is true, does that therefore make it vital that the Royal Australian Air Force and the United States Air Force maintain a very close relationship with each other and work cooperatively all the time? 
Yeah, and um, well, that is true, but it's not just about the United States. Um, we, Australia lives in a region with so many wonderful uh, partners and neighbours. Uh, so throughout Southeast Asia, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, uh, New Zealand, all the Pacific Island nations, further north, uh, up through to the, uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, that's our region. Uh, the United States is present here as well, but it's not Australia and the United States versus the world, far from it. It's a case of um, we work with, by uh, and through our, uh, our partners uh, is the bottom line. And we're all in the game of individual and collective security as well. Mm, sure. Every, every country, though, makes its own sovereign decisions. Um, and so we need to uh, acknowledge and respect that as well. But where we get uh, best um, best cohesion is when we just be just good neighbours. And part of that is kind of like at the heart of uh, flying discipline as well. You gain most situational awareness by listening and not by talking. And so, as we say in the fighter game, it's big ears and little mouth. When we engage with the region, we really need to be hearing what are the issues and concerns uh, for our regional partners uh, and, and figure out whether, firstly, A, they want our help uh, and B, or, or are they asking for our help? And, 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 and then thirdly, if they are, then that's great. How is it we might help? And so I, I can't stress uh, the criticality uh, of our closest uh, regional partners here in terms of how we operate and how we provide collective security. Isn't that daily operation of the RAAF, uh, is that why the humanitarian side of the RAAF's work is so important? Be there a, a cyclone, be there a tsunami, be there an earthquake, be there whatever, where the RAAF has gone to the assistance. How important is that role for the Royal Australian Air Force? Well, I think so. Military power as an element of national power. Um, the the key part is it really is um, it exemplifies nation to nation relationships, and so the ability for the Australian government to actually say we as Australians uh, are keen to help you in your time of need, the elements that they have at their disposal includes but is not limited by the Australian Defence Force. That's what the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade actually does. And so all humanitarian assistance, uh, the primacy for those falls within that department. We are very much in support of. Uh, we have unique assets uh, within the Australian Defence Force and, and notably within the Royal Australian Air Force to be able to respond quickly uh, to the immediate aftermath uh, of a disaster. How would you explain the Royal Australian Air Force's... How would you see the Royal Australian Air Force's role having evolved since you first joined all those few years ago? Yeah, um, almost 38 years now. Garrison, I didn't want to mention a number. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, when I first joined up, uh, the world was kind of raging peace. Uh, and when Australia felt safe and secure, and certainly the heady days during the 80s as well, where everyone was getting rich quick, 
there was no real context of why do we actually have a defence force. And, and in fact, um, I recall times uh, where walking down the street, if you're recognised as being the defence force, you know, you weren't actually welcomed. Uh, and and so uh, I think that's also important for all of us to remember. There was a time when uh, the defence force weren't seen as either value adding or part of uh, the national psyche of what uh, Australia actually is. And, and that was pretty much probably the first 20 years of my career, uh, I reckon, uh, before, well, at least the first 15 years of my career, I reckon, before that dynamic started to change. Because uh, the Australian people, rightly or wrongly, will ask the question, why are we spending money on defence when um, I need money spent on education or health or other things that are important to us? Uh, that dynamic changed uh, certainly uh, more deliberately in 1999 uh, with the uh, East Timor yeah. uh, crisis and pretty much from 2001 onwards, the Australian Defence Force has, has almost been on non-stop operations since. But there was a period of time before that where we hadn't been. Um, now, Australian public's view towards the Defence Force in my career has changed dramatically as a consequence of that. Mm. And so the reason why it has changed is because the Australian Defence Force has proved three things. It's proved that it is relevant to what uh, is needed. It's proved itself credible uh, to how it acquits itself. And it's proved itself reliable in terms of being able to do the things it's required to be done as well. Oh. So it's really important for people to keep that in context, and that's, the, I guess, the benefit I have of having such a long career. I've seen both sides of the fence. Yeah, I see that reflected each year on the Anzac Day ceremonies across Australia. I go to the one in Sydney all the time, and just to see it grow in number, uh, particularly with young Australians who are acknowledging the importance of the Anzac tradition, and of its defence forces. And I was privileged to be at Brisbane Air Force, sorry, Brisbane Airport one day when troops were coming back from overseas, serving overseas, and about 15 troops in uniform got off. And all the people in the terminal applauded as the troops walked past. And it was just so inspiring to, to watch this happen, which would never have happened when the troops came back from, and didn't happen when they came back from Vietnam. No, that's uh, absolutely right. And in fact... Um, in the United States, they always say, thank you for your service. Um, I've started to hear that within the Australian public as well, and whether that has been Defence Force personnel uh, assisting during uh, the COVID response in, in states uh, through flood assist, uh, or even in their operational sense, uh, the non-combatant evacuation operation in Afghanistan last year as well, I'm now hearing thank you for your service and it's genuine from the public as well. And so uh, we need to uh, recognise that's a great position for us to be in, but retaining um, that reputation and retaining that compact with the Australian people remains something that we need to always be uh, conscious of as well. Because as I'm saying, it, it's, it hasn't always been that way and all it takes is 
uh, you know, a couple of rotten events for the Australian public to change its perspective yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. of the Defence Force as well. Well, look, congratulations on your Order of Australia. Congratulations on your Bachelor of Science. Congratulations on your Master's degree. But more importantly, congratulations on occupying a significant role within the Australian Defence Force. You are the Air Vice Marshal, Air Commander Australia. You're a very cooperative person and you have an amazing concept of what a leader should be and you certainly exemplify that each and every day in your role. I want to thank you for the privilege of you sharing some of your thoughts with us today and I wish I had another hour because I'd like to explore it even more. So one day if you're ever promoted above your current rank, can we please have a chat then as well? Well, uh, I'm happy to take you up on that offer there, Gareth, if you can sway someone to promote me. So, um... <laughs> Thank you for your time today. No, thank you, Gareth. I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of for Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.